Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Occasionally, we dive into ecology on the show, and today we wanted to focus on an animal you've probably seen in your neighborhood, coyotes. They've expanded from the Arctic all the way to Central America. What is it about coyotes that make them so adaptable? Today, where we live, we'll talk to researchers about them, and we want to answer your questions, too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Now, the first time I saw a coyote was when I lived in Middletown, Connecticut, and it was a pair of coyotes hunting a groundhog in the field behind our backyard. They looked pretty big to me, and they started to run off when they saw me still dragging that groundhog with them. Now, occasionally I hear them howling at night. What about you? Call in to share your coyote observations, or you can tweet us a photo of one near where you live, at where we live. Again, that number, 888-720-9677. I want to welcome to the show on Zoom today, Dr. Chris Schell. He's Assistant Professor of Urban Ecology at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Also with us is Dr. Carol Hinger. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo, and she studied New York City's coyote population for her dissertation research. Carol, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Chris, I'll start with you. We're curious about uh, why you started studying coyotes when you were a graduate student. What drew you to them? Yeah, I was really fascinated just by their behavioral flexibility, how they could adapt to a whole host of situations, including urban systems and figure out people better than we can figure out people. And one of the examples that I oftentimes come back to is this Quiznos coyote that most people know about, at least in Chicago in 2008, <laughs> a coyote walked into a Quiznos with people there and walked into the cooler. And I always was fascinated by why that was the case and how that happened. So that led me to answer questions <laughs> and really address why did this Quizlos coyote decide to do what it did? Oh my God, I totally forgot about that until you mentioned it. <laughs> so uh, when was the first time you actually saw a coyote in the wild, Chris, do you remember? Yeah, as early as five for sure. Mm -hmm. And the wild here I'm using pretty loosely, but I grew up in Los Angeles. So I had seen coyotes fairly frequently on streets all over the place. And that was one of my real first experiences, being a kid walking through the Rose Bowl and seeing these animals do what they do. Mm. And Carol, what about you? You had a career as a zookeeper before you went back to school to get your PhD. And you're actually again, doing research on New York City coyotes. The fact that coyotes are in New York City and LA could be surprising to some people. Yes, I think that's what drew me to studying them. Uh, I'm originally from Texas and we had coyotes there, of course, but, uh, living in the city, I didn't realize that, that they were here. And when I learned about it, I, I was so amazed that coyotes could survive in the city. And I had just had to learn more about it. You know, what were they eating? Uh, how long were they here? How many did we have? You know, I was just so curious and, um, and how they could survive within New York City. Now, when we see coyotes, they look like small dogs, Chris. Is that how you would describe them? 
Yeah, absolutely. Sorry about that. Also dealing with a two and a four year old who are deciding <laughs> all about like my own normal coyotes. <laughs> so uh, when I see them, sometimes people might be like, oh, that's a wolf, but definitely not a wolf in, in eastern, uh, eastern part of the, the state. Carol, what about you? Oh, yeah, I can. Um, yeah. So uh, I've heard that, too. Uh, people say, oh, I heard I saw a wolf on the side of the road. And uh, yeah, we, we don't have wolves um, here in the, the eastern part of the country. Uh, it's definitely a coyote. And uh, I think what helps them a lot, especially in the city, is that they look a lot like dogs. Uh, I think um, upon first glance, people might think, oh, it's just a, a stray dog. And you don't really notice it's a coyote until you look at them again. So let's talk about the eastern part of the country where uh, we live now, Carol. If we go back about 200 years, what did the carnivore landscape look like? Sure. Um, so a couple hundred years ago, we uh, we had a lot uh, a lot more uh, carnivores. We had, we had wolves, we had bears, um, and they were uh, living in the forest areas in the east. Um, coyotes generally lived in the central and western parts of the country. Uh, but around a couple hundred years ago, we um, we went on a predator extermination kick. Mm -hmm. We wanted to get rid of a lot of the predators because they were um, they could come after our livestock, and so a lot of um, a lot of change happened where we um, we poisoned or otherwise uh, wanted to get rid of a lot of the, the predators, and we also changed a lot of our land to agricultural land. And that really helped the coyotes because they were able to survive um, this onslaught that the wolves, for example, were not able to survive. And so you got um, wolves and mountain lions and bears um, that a lot of their populations decreased. And the coyotes were able to, to take advantage of that. And uh, once the wolves were uh, extirp or extirpated from the United mm -hmm. States, um, the coyotes really took over um, the, those habitats that wolves once used. And uh, they've made their way um, across the eastern part of the, the country. And they're just now uh, completing their colonization of the United States with, uh, with Long Island. So we're able to see this colonization process happen in real time. Mm. And we'll talk more about uh, what uh, researchers have found about coyotes making it to Long Island in just a little bit. With me again on Zoom, Dr. Carol Hinger, postdoctoral fellow at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo, and joining us from Washington State, Dr. Chris Shell, assistant professor of urban ecology. We want to hear your coyote observations here in our state. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. Uh, Anthony's calling in from East Hartford. Anthony, what have you seen? Well, um, hi, first off, thank you so much for having me. I would love you too. Thank you. But I've seen, I've seen um, quite a few coyotes, actually. So just coming off of Route 2, I'll see them on the exit ramp. I've had to, like, you know, stop suddenly to not have any issues. Um, I've seen these out in Simsbury when I worked there. They were chasing deer. Um, and the deer actually went out in the middle of the street, caused a motorcycle accident. Oh, Oh, wow. So that's interesting. Coyotes yeah, chase. They're around. <laughs> so you've seen them a few times, Anthony. Thank you for calling in. So, Carol, that's interesting that coyotes will be chasing deer. Like, coyotes will take down deer. That is interesting. That's something that it's it's a new avenue of research that I've been reading about. It's, um, you know, we didn't really think that they took, you know, adult deer. But there's anecdotal reports that um, a few coyotes will um, – 
hunt together to to hunt adult deer but usually they um they will uh take fawns a, a single coyote can take a, um, a deer fawn but an adult deer is pretty big for one coyote to manage on its own but there's been these anecdotal reports of multiple coyotes sometimes um hunting adult deer which is really interesting Mm. And Chris, I wanted to get you back into this conversation. We were talking with Carol about how, uh, you know, 200 years ago, the wolf was the apex predator. Uh, they were driven out and killed uh, because of logging and other reasons uh, by humans. And so now we've got coyotes expanding from the Arctic Circle all the way down to Central America. Uh, when we think about um, how they've adapted and where they are now uh, in, in, I guess, the, the food chain, so to speak. So no real predators? Yeah, right, exactly. And thank you all for your patience. Um, what we're seeing is that the way in which the landscape changed, kind of to what Carol had uh, addressed earlier, is that now that we have these cities, these megalopolises that are functioning in ways that are very different from more non-urban environments, wolves wouldn't be found in those areas uh, anyway. So imagine a wolf kind of running down any downtown area you're from. It, it doesn't happen often because wolves travel in packs. Coyotes are a little bit more clandestine. They can travel as single individuals or as pairs. So it's easier for them to navigate the built environment the way in which we've made it. And they, I like to think of them as, I, I use the dark night line quite a lot. The heroes, <laughs> maybe that we don't necessarily want, but the ones that we need, I certainly want them, but they're, they're doing a lot of functions for us as the now de facto apex predators in our cities. Mm, that's interesting. Do you think that people see them as pests today, Chris, and then Carol? Certainly, I would say some do. And mm. it definitely depends on the way in which you perceive not only the landscape and the coyotes, but the types of organisms that you also value. And that comes to culture, that comes to society. So for instance, if you have an outdoor cat, you may perceive coyotes as a threat because they're a threat to your outdoor cat. Or if you have a small child, you'll, you'll think the same. Or if you have say agriculture, whereas others are just surprised that coyotes could even live in their cities. Mm. Carol, when people see coyotes in New York City, are they frightened by them? Uh, some, some are. Um, it, I guess it, it does go back to what Chris was saying about how you perceive your um, the landscape around you. A lot of people in New York City don't perceive it as a place where coyotes can live. Uh, same thing with me at first when I first thought about coyotes here. But then um, when you look at um, how much green space is in New York City, uh, you realize we have uh, two very big parks in the Bronx and we have a lot of green space around the city and that's providing the habitat for coyotes. And uh, when we learn about how behaviorally flexible coyotes are in terms of where they can live and the they don't need that much size of, you know, that much space and they can live in a variety of different areas, then uh, we realize that this New York City is a perfect place for coyotes. They can really adapt to lots of different situations. You can join our conversation. Again, we want to hear about your observations of coyotes where you live, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Chris, I wanted to go back to something you said about how, uh, you know, while some people may see coyotes as pests or threats, that we need them. And so talk more about um, how they've become the apex predator, what they are eating that we consider uh, pests living around us. Yeah, absolutely. So they do what's known as an ecosystem service. And when we say ecosystem service, it means thinking about how natural systems contribute back to society and back to people. So think pollinators, right? Mm -hmm. Bees pollinate different plants that provide a whole host 
of agricultural products for people. Coyotes do the same, even though they do it in ways that we would never really consider, oh, okay, that's an ecosystem service. So for instance, imagine if coyotes are eating species that we also consider pests, brown rats that you see in cities, eastern cottontail, which have exploded here in the Seattle-Tacoma region, potentially Canada geese. All of those organisms do a lot of either property damage through chewing through property or through, say, public defacement of feces. And coyotes are eating those organisms. So they're depredating or predating upon those populations, which then reduces the amount of potential damage and also the economic cost. Really good example when I was doing work in Chicago was there are a bunch of eastern cottontail that would oftentimes be eating the foliage in the area. And coyotes were some of the most awesome kind of free pest management service that we could have <laughs> because they changed the way in which the rabbits behaved on the landscape. So they also, too, could be eating organisms that eat smaller organisms. So say if they eat a domestic cat that may be eating some bird species that may also be eating mosquitoes. If there are less cats that are outdoors and eating those birds, and there are more birds to eat those mosquitoes, which again serves as free pest management. So then they can be essentially in the fray of influencing the way in which disease dynamics play a role in the city. Again, you can join us as we learn more about coyotes. Uh, they're pretty adaptable as we're learning today. The number 888-720-9677. Diane's calling in from Meriden. Diane, have you seen a coyote? Yeah, for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Uh, first I thought it was a dog and then I thought, oh, the legs are way too long and the, the muzzle looks different. So I was all excited. I told my neighbors, and the neighbors across the street have an area of woods behind them, and they said, oh, they had seen them for quite some time. And, and another neighbor has a video camera on at night, and she said she had seen small packs of them going through from my yard into through her yard at night um, for some time. But I was very happy to hear they're here because I've never had as many rabbits as I had last summer. They ate things in my, I have a lot of flower garden and veggie garden and everything was eaten, things that had never been eaten before. So um, I'm hoping that they really control the rabbits. Well, thank you, Diana. I hear you. That's happened to me, too. That speaks to what you were sharing, Chris, about um, the where the, the coyotes are uh, beneficial uh, for uh, us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it you know, we don't necessarily have coyotes. The question then becomes what other predators exist? Certainly foxes can be there or raccoons, but they don't necessarily serve the same purpose or function. So coyotes are, again, the best predators we got in these urban systems. Mm. Sean's calling in from Manchester. Sean, go ahead. Yes, how you doing? I have a quick story and also have a question for you okay. guys. Um, when we were younger, me and my brothers used to ride ATVs on the power line trails in Manchester, and there was a small pack of coyotes, and they actually chased us down the trail for quite a ways. My, my question is, do you think that they were chasing us viciously, or, or were they playing, you know, kind of horsing around? Mm, that's a good question. Chris or Carol? Yeah, absolutely. So likely the behavior was they were just trailing you on their territory. It wasn't necessarily aggressive, uh, nor was it play. It was really just inquisitive. They were curious as to what you were going to do. And that power trail line likely was the edge of their territory. 
So they were curious to see what you were going to do in the territory, and that's why they were trailing behind you. Um, if they weren't baring teeth, if they weren't growling, if their tails weren't tucked, if their ears weren't tucked, then those are all of the signs of telltale aggression. And likely, I'm guessing none of that um, occurred. Sean, do you have another question? No, that's it. I appreciate the information. Thank you. Thank you, Sean, for calling in. And you can too, 888-720-9677 as we learn more about coyotes with my guest today here on Where We Live. Again, Dr. Chris Schell, Assistant Professor of Urban Ecology at University of Washington, Tacoma, and Dr. Carol Hinger, Postdoctoral Fellow at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo. She studied New York City's coyote population for her dissertation research. And we're going to talk more about coyotes in the city as well as now in Long Island. What questions do you have, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coyotes have dominated North America. On the East Coast, researchers say coyotes have now made it to Long Island. Today, we're talking about why coyotes are so adaptable. And we want to hear your questions. The number 888-720-9677. My guest today on Zoom, Dr. Chris Schell, Assistant Professor of Urban Ecology at the University of Washington, Tacoma, and Dr. Carol Hinger, Postdoctoral Fellow at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo. Uh, Sean is calling from the town of Clinton. Sean, go ahead. Hey, how you doing? Um, so two things, I guess. One, I heard uh, or read rather that coyotes in the East Coast are a hybrid of wolves. Uh, and the second thing is that I've seen them travel in pairs, but uh, I have heard anecdotally that they, they do have pack distributions. Is that a thing or am I mishearing? <laughs> Great question, Sean. Uh, Carol, I'll start with you. Let's talk about the DNA of the eastern coyote. Oh, yeah, sure. So um, the eastern coyotes do have some wolf DNA. Um, that's because as they were expanding their range, they um, went above the Great Lakes and into Canada and their eastern expansion across the U.S. And while in Canada, they some of the coyotes there mated with, with some of the wolves. And we did get coyote-wolf hybrids. Um, that was about a couple hundred years ago, and they've been moving uh, south from Canada ever since. Uh, and they haven't been maintaining those um, uh, uh, connections with wolves. They haven't been mating with wolves in the U.S. So uh, the wolf DNA has decreased over time as coyotes have just mated with coyotes. But there's also been um, coyotes mating with dogs because coyotes, wolves, and dogs can all interbreed together. Uh, so the the eastern coyote population has about 80% coyote DNA and about 10% wolf DNA and 10% dog DNA. Um, it's thought that the coyote DNA or the wolf DNA may make it easier for the, uh, the eastern coyotes to hunt deer, uh, but we're not uh, sure of that yet, but that's a possibility. Mm. Now, what about the question that Sean had about um, hearing coyotes traveling in pairs? I think we touched on that earlier, Chris, but uh, would they ever travel more than just two or are they oftentimes solo? Sure, they may travel as three to five individuals within a given space, but it certainly depends on the way in which the landscape is structured. So 
if the area is more exposed, say for instance, a bike trail, they likely would travel as one individual or as a pair. But there can be instances where they travel as packs. And it should be noted that even though they're traveling individually, they do persist in packs. Really this kind of natal expansion, if you will, the nuclear family. So they are doing their best version of social distancing where they have their breeding pair and then several offspring from previous generations and an offspring from the current generation that are all together in a single pack. Sometimes you have what's known as this fish infusion where a few individuals from a separate pack come together with those of another in the event that one of the packs had dissolved for whatever reason. But oftentimes when they travel, they travel according to whatever the landscape permits. Mm. Now I've seen the term koi wolf. Uh, do scientists like that, that term, Chris? Yeah, when you we think about it, coyotes? We use it quite a bit. Um, okay. That and we oftentimes code switch between saying coyote and coyote. And it mm. seems to be very regional and also different along urban and rural gradients. Mm. So I wanted to talk more about your research, uh, Carol Hinger, who's with us. When we talk about coyotes in New York City, where are they found exactly in New York City? And how do they survive? What are they eating? Well, uh, they mainly they're in the, the Bronx. That's where uh, most of the coyotes are. That's where they most likely uh, settled when they first arrived in New York City, coming down from uh, Connecticut and Westchester. And, um, and we have two very big parks in the Bronx, and that's where they would live. Uh, they also, we have a, a few scattered around Queens. And then, um, as we said before, they are going into Long Island. Uh, they're eating a variety of foods. Uh, they're omnivores. And I think that's what makes them such great animals to be able to live in, in the city uh, because they are able to change their food depending on uh, food availability. Uh, uh, they're eating mostly, uh, I, I did a diet study looking at the, through the genetics in their uh, scat or their poop. And uh, I found they're eating a variety of different mammals. They do eat cottontails, a lot of uh, rabbits, and they're eating raccoons, which is great because they um, can help control uh, rabies and the raccoon population by keeping those numbers down. Uh, they're eating things like rodents, rats, mice. Um, they're eating things like skunks, uh, possums, groundhogs, and also several bird species, uh, plants. And then they'll occasionally um, eat human food. Like I found chicken in the diet. I found ham, uh, things like that, that we would leave on the ground for them. So they are able to take advantage of whatever resources that they come across. They are opportunists that will uh, take advantage of a wide variety of food resources. And the ones in Chicago eat Quiznos subs, according to Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to go back to something that Chris said about uh, how they travel and whether they um, operate in packs. And I'm wondering in New York City, from your research, uh, Carol, are they related? when you see different uh, uh, pairs uh, living in different parts of the Bronx? I did find that, yes. Um, so when I looked at across the city, so the Bronx um, and in Queens, uh, I did find that it looks like it's a multi-generational group. Uh, so you probably had the first coyotes establishing themselves in the Bronx and then their offspring uh, have since colonized areas um, in uh in the southern part of the Bronx and into Queens. So it's pretty neat. You see even the coyotes in Queens are related probably the, you know, the child or the grandchild of the ones in the Bronx. Um, 
and we did see high genetic diversity. So it's not like these are all interbreeding with each other. It looks like there's enough migration coming down from Westchester or Connecticut to uh, make sure that they have enough genetic diversity. So there's not inbreeding mm -hmm. occurring in the city. Can we go back to what you said about how you have looked at their scat or poop for the budding naturalists out there? Uh, it might be hard to maybe snap a picture of a coyote in your backyard, but if you wanted to see if they're around, what does their scat look like? It's uh, mainly you would get it confused with a dog. So mm -hmm. comparing coyote scat to dog scat, um, it's drier because they don't drink as much water as dogs do. It also is hairier because they're eating prey. And uh, at the end, it's pointed. So when you see the end of it, um, there's a little point. Sometimes it's actually spiral. It's, it's curved a little bit. So those three things will help you to distinguish coyote scat from dog scat. Mm. Again, we'd love to hear your questions about coyotes today here on the show, 888-720-9677. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Chris, uh, Karen on Facebook uh, wrote, I live in eastern Connecticut in the woods. We have coyotes, bobcats, and fox as frequent visitors. She wants to know, how do these predators coexist? Yeah, so they oftentimes will spatially or temporally, so in space and time, kind of avoid each other and they may eat some of the same foods, but they avoid each other because of the fact that they eat the same foods. So in canids and in just carnivores, generally the larger carnivore tends to eat the smaller carnivore in order to release many of the pressures of what they may be eating, but they all do coexist in ways that are pretty fascinating. So foxes will develop strategies to say, I don't go to habitat a, between 12 and 3 a.m. because that's where a coyote lives. Or they'll say, well, the park on this side of the street is for us, whereas the park on the other side is for the coyotes. Also really fascinating is recent research has taken a look into this hypothesis known as the human shield, where human beings and the density and activity of where humans are serve as a shield to larger predators or a shield for prey. So what that means is that where there are denser urbanized areas, you'll tend to see more foxes or more bobcats because they're trying to stay away from the coyotes, which are tolerant of people, but could kind of care less about the people. Mm. Jill's calling in from Guilford. Jill, what's your question? Hi, my question is, who is eating the coyotes? Like, will they overpopulate just like the deer have overpopulated? And do coyotes eat deer? Carol? That's a... Or Chris? <laughs> no, no, go Carol, ahead, Chris. yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Carol, go ahead. Um, so no one's eating the deer. Uh, so uh, they don't really have any natural predators um, unless there, there are wolves around or, or um, if they live near mountain lions. Um, but they do tend to uh, keep their own populations in check. They don't tend to breed if there's not enough resources around. Uh, they have this really interesting capacity to modulate how many pups they have. So if resources are scarce, they'll have less pups. But if uh, resources are plentiful, they will have more pups in a litter. And uh, that's one of the reasons why it's really hard to uh, eradicate them, like we've seen before. Um, if they... Uh, if you try to limit their populations, then there will be more resources for the ones that survive and they'll have bigger litters. 
Mm. So that's interesting. So there's no predators really of coyotes except, you know, humans. And I, I saw a statistic, Chris, that hundreds of thousands of coyotes are killed uh, each year in North America, yet they, their population, the numbers are still looking good for them. Absolutely. And it goes back to what Carol was saying in terms of how hard it is to eradicate them because the reproductive success is so high in urban systems because food resources are so stable and they have quite a bit of food to eat. So even though there aren't any natural predators of coyotes in cities, that first year of life is pretty hard for them. And most oftentimes they are hit by cars while trying to cross roads. And that serves as a really huge kind of mortality risk for coyote populations. Mm. Leslie's calling in from East Hampton. Leslie, uh, what did you see? Uh, yes, I worked in um, East Hartford, about a football field length away from I-84, and I could watch the coyotes and the deer in the greenway that was behind my building, this little stream and a little greenway, and I saw five coyotes uh, going after a doe and her fawn, and the doe got up on her back legs and kicked at the coyotes and kept the five off, and then she and her fawn hopped in a little stream swam across to a little island and the coyotes went back and forth and back and forth and and didn't um get her but she held five coyotes off and they lived in this tiny little green space that was on silver lane uh in in you know in east hartford it was crazy that's amazing. You've got a good office view, <laughs> Leslie, from where uh, you're working in East Hartford. Chris, uh, how do you react to that story? Yeah, that's incredible and also reminds me of classic predator-prey dynamics, which there are videos of African wild dogs doing the same thing with wildebeest in different areas of the Serengeti. So coyotes are what are called these cursorial predators, meaning that they don't relent. They're, they're pretty determined when it comes to a prey item and also they know when to cut their losses. So that is an incredible story and one that I think is very endearing and shows quite a bit about how predators and preys interact in urban environments as well. Mm. Now, earlier, Carol, we were talking about your research uh, in uh, New York City, and I've mentioned a few times now that they're now in Long Island. Richard wants to know, how did they get to Long Island? Are they strong swimmers? What do we know? Well, they probably take the same routes that we do, uh, most likely bridges and uh, using like train tracks. Um, they've been shown to use those kind of corridors to get from one place to another. They can swim, but um, that that can be dangerous, you know, depending on uh, how the water is and everything. And uh, they're probably, I, I, would, I would guess they're using bridges to get across. And then Chris, well, how did you react to that news that uh, there are now coyotes in Long Island and how will that impact Long Island? Certainly. I thought, Yep, here we go again. Um, in almost every city I've studied coyotes, now three and four counting, when coyotes start to establish themselves, it's only a matter of time before they become dominant on the landscape. So you can imagine if they're in Long Island and they're starting to expand, they likely will get to the eastern tip of Long Island here sometime within the next decade and have a pretty standard substantial population. So yes, I, I'd, I'd love to see what that research looks like moving forward. Mm. Jessica has been holding from Westbrook. Jessica, are you still there? Yes. What's your question for our researchers? Um, I hike a lot out in the woods here, down on the shoreline in Connecticut. 
and I've come across coyotes in the woods. Um, I do have a leashed dog. My question is, would the coyotes go after the dog, or would they hunt the dog? I mean, is it safe, or is there anything that we need to worry about when we're doing this? Thank you, Jessica. Uh, Chris? Yeah, the first thing to do is what you did. Keep your dog on a leash whenever you're walking through natural areas. That could be one of the biggest incidents of conflict between coyotes and people is having dogs off leash where dogs are hundreds of yards away from their owner. And as you're walking through a natural area like that, if you do experience or see a coyote, the coyotes aren't really keen on hunting dogs. Rather, they see them somewhat as foxes. So they'll kill them in order to release any predation pressure. But if the dog is with its owner, and if you make yourself as big and as loud as possible, the coyote will oftentimes walk away and move away. It's when specific animals have been fed and are habituated to people that they start to become an issue and a problem, which just takes a lot of community engagement and not feeding the wildlife. Mm-hmm. Is that a worry, uh, Carol, when you hear about coyotes now making it to Long Island, the the increase that may happen between uh, conflicts between coyotes and humans because of, say, a food source or the fact that, you know, a lot of people have outdoor cats? I think it's really only an issue if people uh, feed them intentionally or unintentionally. That That tends to be the main source of conflict because coyotes get used to humans as a source of food. But coyotes naturally are wary of humans, and we just need to keep that natural wariness. Uh, so if you see a coyote out and about, just kind of, yeah, make yourself big, make noise. If it comes towards you, you just, uh, you know, you could, if you wanted to, um, throw rocks toward, you know, toward it, but not at it, uh, if you think a coyote is coming toward you. But it usually that does not happen. They tend to stay away from people because they do have a natural wariness of us. Again, you're hearing Dr. Carol Hanger, a postdoctoral fellow at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo here on Where We Live, along with Dr. Chris Schell, assistant professor of urban ecology at the University of Washington, Tacoma. A, a lot of listeners have questions about coyotes. So I wanted to get through some of those questions. Uh, John in Preston. John, uh, what did you want to share? Uh, there's a large population of coyotes. I mean, even more than the professionals are letting on. I live up against about 2,500 acres of state land by the Mohegan Sun, and I've had the neighbor let his two dogs out in the morning, and one come running back to the door real quick howling, and he went out, and there was two coyotes eating his dog. No matter how much noise he made, it wouldn't stop. Mm. Can't shoot them on public property. Can't shoot them near your house. They called the game officials, and they told us that you can't hire somebody to get rid of them. But they've been a huge problem around here. I put game cameras out because I have a lot of poultry. And they're yeah, I heard that. <laughs> killing my birds. Yeah, well. They're always killing them. But mm-hmm. uh, I've got videotape of as many as seven at a time running around here. Big ones, too. And then they got, there's a domesticated German shepherd running with them. I guess they would call that a koi dog, right? Mm. Well, John, that's really interesting, the observations you're seeing, and it speaks to uh, Chris and Carol, like how can humans and coyotes coexist and, and where there are issues that, that arise? How do you respond to John's observations, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that that type of story that John has shared is one that does happen quite a bit sometimes in terms of 
coyotes potentially coming into conflict with people, whether it be over agriculture, pets, or otherwise. And the best solution to that is to think about community engagement around something Carol brought up, not feeding the animals. So oftentimes there will be certain individuals that seem to have a propensity to people only insofar as that they've been getting food and that there's no negative consequence of them getting those human food subsidies, which ultimately leads to instances that John had shared. So thinking about the ways in which there were intermediary steps for those animals to get where they are, to where they were potentially eating a dog, also thinks about us, right? We reflect on ourselves in, in terms of how we manif manifest on the landscape and what that means for the way in which we coexist with those animals. So there are certainly ways that we can continue to promote coexistence, and I think it's possible. Mm. And Carol, what did you want to add to that? Uh, I think that's uh, what Chris said is, is great. Um, you want to try to get stop anything before it you know gets out of control and coyotes think of us as a food source. Um, but yes, uh, I'm sorry about that situation. Um, that's really, really too bad. I'm sorry that you're losing animals. Again, you can join us here on Where We Live as we learn more about uh, coyotes. Uh, Stephanie, you had a question from Dan Barry. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I tuned in late. I'd like to know if singularly or in a pack, if coyotes have been aggressive toward people, like I could picture maybe a five-year-old in a in a farmland setting and there's a pack nearby and uh, what could uh, adults do not to make an aggressive action if they happen to see them. Mm. And Chris, we did hit on this earlier, but what, did you want to share that for Stephanie who didn't hear it? Right, absolutely. So we oftentimes will call it hazing, and this is not hazing in the sense of any fraternity or sorority, but hazing in the sense of making yourself as big and as loud as possible. And say, for instance, in that specific situation of a five-year-old or a small child, there was a recent report earlier this year about, or I believe actually it was fall of 2019, where a coyote in Chicago had bit a small child. Um, and they had found in the gut of that animal that it was eating human food subsidies. So mm -hmm. there, again, if it's on farmland or if it's in urban systems, the best way to deter coyotes is to constantly be on the animals. And it's not something that is aggressive towards the animals. In fact, it's actually saving their lives by instilling and making sure that wariness stays for those individuals. I wanted to move on because we talked about um, how we can, how we know that coyotes are around us and we might see one if we're lucky, we might see their scat. And Carol, you did a great job of describing uh, what their scat or poop looks like. But Ainsley from uh, Bramford wanted to know more about uh, how they sound. Ainsley, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, quick story and a question. Um, around 10 years ago or a little more, uh, there was uh, increased concern in Brantford about coyotes. One lady said she saw one on the front porch. So they had a town meeting, and it got kind of comical because several people asked if the coyotes could be trapped and then relocated somewhere like, say, Vermont. And it was pointed out that, uh, for one thing, uh, what community elsewhere would want to receive the coyotes that probably wouldn't be welcome, and also that uh, if we took coyotes out of an area, probably because of that sort of pack uh, dynamic, uh, the, it would fill in. Another, you know, they would repopulate and refill their territory. 
And my question is, um, I live near Brantford Supply Ponds Preserve, and often from that direction I'll hear uh, vocalizing. I'll hear uh, what's obviously several or, you know, group of coyotes uh, making noise. I call it a happy hour. And I wonder if that means they're (laughs) feeding or if it reflects any certain behavior or it's just kind of a random thing. Mm. Carol, did you want to take that question? Uh, so I don't know for sure, um, but I've heard speculation that howling uh, could be a way of gauging the population of coyotes. Uh, so coyotes know how many are out there uh, if you hear calls back and forth. Um, but I don't know if if Chris has other ideas. If it's also um, could be when they're when they're hunting. Yeah, absolutely, Carol. And we kind of consider them to be contact calls as well. So I did a lot of my dissertation work in Utah and would find that whenever there were people moving through a landscape or if there was a dog moving through the landscape, uh, one coyote would howl and then the rest of the population would howl. So it's a signal of information that they're sending along the population to let them know, hey, I just saw this or hey, this is Bob. Hey, Bob, this is Carol. Hey, Carol, this is John. So it's a way of them communicating with each other as well. Again, uh, we're learning about coyotes today with my guests, uh, again, Dr. Chris Schell, Assistant Professor of Urban Ecology at University of Washington, Tacoma, and Dr. Carol Hinger, Postdoctoral Fellow at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Dr. Carol Hinger, postdoctoral fellow at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo, and Dr. Chris Schell, assistant professor of urban ecology at the University of Washington, Tacoma, as we learn more about coyotes, uh, where we live. Uh, Jeff's calling in from Trumbull. Jeff, what's your question? Hi. Um, so I live close to some woods, and we have a lot of uh, foxes, coyotes and um, snapping turtles, freaking everything. But um, <laughs> whenever I try and take a picture of them, the problem is is that I can't get it out fast enough. Is there like a cheap, inexpensive way to have like a little camera set up outside to take pictures of everything? Carol, do you want to take that one? Because you have some great shots uh, from the Bronx area. Oh, sure. Um, they do uh, sell uh, what they're called camera traps um, or game cameras. Uh, and you can get cheap ones um, that won't cost, you know, they cost less than $100, I guess, um, all the way up to really nice ones that are hundreds of dollars and can give you really good pictures. But yeah, I'd suggest getting a cheap game camera and then you just hang it on a tree where you think the coyotes might move through. Um, and yeah, it's it's a great way to really enjoy um the coyotes and yeah because you're not going to get a picture yourself it's so hard to to find them yourself but uh, yeah game camera is a really good idea and you can go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Carol shared some uh, pictures from the cams uh, of uh, coyotes and their pups in the Bronx. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Chris Shell, I understand that uh, you and your colleagues just published a paper earlier this fall in the journal Science. And we were looking at, we we're talking about uh, human cities. And when we think about the dynamics in our cities, we can see how racism and economic inequality map onto um, our cities. 
studies, but you and your colleagues looked at how systemic racism actually shapes the ecological processes in our cities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the research that we were doing in this vein was to take a look at where many of the ecosystem services, the habitats, the green spaces are distributed across the landscape and what that means for the animals that live in our cities. So for instance, if we're having this conversation, for instance, about coyotes, and we're thinking about what does a coyote need to move and thrive in a city, you then start to think about what are the habitat conditions around the city and look at where those green spaces are. And through many different projects, some hosted by NPR, we see that legacies like redlining and urban renewal and white flight have all affixed where specific green spaces are across the landscape and have essentially created this habitat fragmentation based off of structural inequalities that shape where many of the prime habitat conditions are, which is part of the reason why we see this hypothesis called the luxury effect, this idea that in wealthier neighborhoods, there are greater numbers of species and they're more biodiverse. And that is drawn all the way back to the way in which the cities and the built environment were structured in the first place. We'll be sure to link uh, to more about that study uh, at where we live. Uh, Carol, before we run out of time, we wanted to bring this up. There was a study published earlier this week in the journal Nature that found that globally human-made stuff now outweighs all the living biomass on Earth. So that's compared to 1900 when human-made stuff was only 3% of the world's biomass. What's your reaction to this news and, and how it impacts all these species? Wow, that's amazing. I have not read that, but I have to read that now. Wow, I, I'm surprised it's that much. Um, but, and I mean, I can understand uh, living in, in New York City um, and seeing Manhattan. Um, I can understand that. But uh, at, that that's what makes it so great for, um, that. what makes coyotes so great uh, of a species to live in the city, uh, because they can navigate those human structures. Um, they can actually use developed areas to move through the city. Um, so they are lucky in that they can do it. A lot of species are not able to, they need more connected green space. Um, but yeah, so that's one of the reasons coyotes are able to live in New York City is that they can navigate through those areas to get to the more natural areas where they find food and, and live. And Chris, uh, to end the show, when we think about climate change, our activities have such an impact, a huge impact on nature. Right, right, absolutely. And that's one of the really amazing stories that's coming out of the work that I think Carol and I are doing is that as we learn about the genetics of these species, as we learn about their behavior, as we learn about their ecology, is teaching us quite a bit on the ways in which we drive the landscape and how that scales up, not just within cities, but outside of cities. We've been talking about coyotes in New York and coyotes in Chicago and coyotes in Los Angeles, but also there are plenty of other organisms that serve very similar roles or different roles, complementary roles that all contribute to the way in which we think about climate and nutrients that are passed through ecosystem services and the like. So for us as human beings, it's really important to think about how we care for our natural communities by caring for each other. And what that means is thinking about how industry, thinking about how we as individuals and as communities come together for thinking of really innovative strategies that help to mitigate the climate crisis. Mm. Well, this has been a really interesting hour. Were either of you surprised we got so many calls about coyotes on the show? Carol? <laughs> 
Uh, I'm usually, not, I'm not surprised. I usually get a lot of questions about, <laughs> about coyotes. Uh, it's a never ending uh, topic of discussion. So it's, it's great to see that here. Well, I want to thank Dr. Carol Hinger, postdoctoral fellow at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo. We appreciate your time, Carol. And Dr. Chris Schell, Assistant Professor of Urban Ecology at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Chris, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to let you know on Monday, uh, Connecticut sent large portions of the state's waste to the Mira Trash to Energy plant in Hartford, despite protests by residents who say the plant has caused health problems. Now that plant is set to close on the next where we live. We'll talk with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Commissioner Katie Dykes about what's next for the state's waste and energy futures. We also want to hear your questions. That's coming up Monday. We hope you have a great weekend.